Isaiah 44, 1-5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. They shall spring up like grass amid waters, like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, The Lord's, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Do you know why it's it's easier to be nice to people on Friday than on Monday? Isn't it because hope is like a river that flows into us out of a bright future and fills our reservoir of joy, which then spills over in love or kindness onto other people. On Friday, the rest and recreation that we love so much is right around the corner. It's so close you can taste it. And the taste of the power of the weekend to come flows back into your heart, begets hope. Hope gives joy, and joy spills over in kind deeds or love to other people so that you're always nicer to people when you're happy about your future and you feel secure and you're not scared or discouraged about what's coming. It happens before vacations. It happens before birthdays. It happens before Christmas. And therefore, if you think that's on the right track, it won't be hard, will it, to explain to people why the Christian faith is just what the doctor ordered for the human heart. Most people want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. But not everybody realizes that they want something a little more than happiness. What people want deep down, I think, is to be so full that they can make other people happy. The real freedom and power of heart and soul that you crave at bottom is to be so full you'll be like a spring and not a sponge. And until you get to the point where your life is a spring from which others can drink, I don't think you'll ever know fullness of satisfaction and joy. Isn't that why almost everybody, everybody that I ever heard of admires Mother Teresa? I don't ever hear people saying, oh, terrible thing to do. What a way to spend your life in Calcutta. Everybody deep down feels a sense of admiration. Why? Because we wish we had power to deny ourselves earthly cravings to live for other people. Because there's joy and power and wonder and fulfillment and freedom 
in being a person for others, not just a sponge that's always sucking off of other people to try to shore up our inadequacies. And yet, when we look at ourselves, we don't really make it most of the time, do we? Our hearts are pretty puny and we have childish frustrations and feeble pursuits of pleasure. Rarely do we find that people are drinking from our fountain, that we are so full and content and at peace that we are overflowing for others. That's just not much a part of our experience as we'd like it to be. Why? I think the reason is that weekends are imperfect. Vacations cost money and come to an end. Birthdays bring presents, yes, but also age. Christmas trees dry up and the postcard you got from that long-lost friend, you will not get another one for another year, probably. The problem for all of us is that the fullness of joy and the freedom of love that we crave will never come until we can be completely assured that our future is going to be maximally happy. If you think your future is going to be bleak, And to the degree that you think it's going to be bleak, you will be insecure and unhappy and you will not be a person for others, but they will be stepping stones for your own satisfaction. Let me say it again. Until we can feel the full assurance of a guaranteed future of maximum joy, our lives are going to be a continued sequence of childish cravings and self-centered frustrations. The fact that we are all kinder on Friday than we are on Monday ought to teach us that joy and love flow from hope. If we don't have hope, we can't have joy. If we don't have joy, we'll use other people rather than serve other people. But since all weekends peter out into Monday, we ought to learn that we ought to become Christians. Because the stunning message at the root of the Christian gospel is this. It's almost too good to be true. The Christian gospel is the good news that God has spoken to those who trust Him these words. I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29:11. Mark it down. You'll want to memorize it if you haven't already. The heart of the gospel is that God, by giving His own Son, purchased and guaranteed the best and happiest future possible for all those who trust Him. 
If you believe that, it'll revolutionize your Monday morning and all the Mondays of your life. Here's the way Paul put it to the church at Rome. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? No good thing will he withhold from those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. Do you believe that? Or do you think, well, he withheld lots of good things from me yesterday and will tomorrow? Then you don't understand the gospel yet. No wonder we live in defeat. No wonder we're unhappy from day to day. We do not believe in a sovereign God who loves us and guaranteed it in Jesus Christ. How can you have fullness of joy, you may ask, and glorious freedom to love other people when the weekend brings loneliness? When the car breaks down halfway to the lake on vacation, $600 unexpected? When the birthday carries you irrevocably one year closer to death every year, Answer, become a Christian. Become a Christian. Believe God when he says, all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or when he gets real down into the nitty gritty and says, rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces Patient endurance and patient endurance produces tested character and tested character produces hope and hope never lets you down because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you believe that? Can you rejoice Mondays? Because they work hope in you. If you can't, then you need to just open your eyes to the gospel. To the God of Calvary. Christians believe in a sovereign God who never says oops. Neither Fridays or Mondays. Christians believe that all our days, Fridays and Mondays, are divine strokes on the canvas of our lives by a master artist who certified for us his skill, his wisdom, and his love in the masterpiece of Calvary. If you doubt his skill in painting your life, look at Calvary. The Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts Paul says to assure us that if God did not spare his own son, he won't spare any efforts to make you happy forever. Do you believe God is withholding good from you? Then you don't know what the gospel is about. Or you're not trusting him. Therefore, hope does not disappoint Therefore, joy 
is undaunted in the face of suffering. Therefore, freedom to love is possible in this rotten world. That is, it's possible for those who are willing to follow Jesus into the boat. When you see the storm clouds across the Sea of Galilee coming, and he says, look, get into the boat. If you're willing to get in the boat with Jesus and believe that at the appointed time in your storm and not before, he will say, peace, be still. And all the clouds will stop sending their bolts against you. Water is made for the gills of a fish. Wind is made for the wings of a bird. And the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is made for the soul of man. And it fits. It fits your longing. It gives full assurance of hope. No matter how old you are. It gives fullness of joy. And fullness of joy overflows in love to other people. And that's what you want at bottom is to be a loving person. What more could anybody ask? Now, let me pause here and ask, what's all this got to do with the Holy Spirit? Which is what we're about in this series. I think the answer is plain. Being filled with joy from the river of hope that flows into us from God's assured future overflows in love to other people. All of that is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Nothing very fancy or complicated. To have hope on the horizon filling you with joy in your heart, spilling over with love to others, is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are some passages in the New Testament that show you more clearly why I think that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't bother looking these up because I'm just going to pass over them quickly and get to Isaiah. Romans 15:13 says, "May the God of hope notice his name, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing in order that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. So where does hope come from? The power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is abounding in you, you are abounding in hope. Or here's another way Paul puts it in Romans 5, 5. He says, hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Which means, doesn't it, that the mission of the Holy Spirit in your heart is to open your eyes to see that the implication of being loved by God is that your hope is faultless and sure. And therefore, the Holy Spirit, again, is the minister of hope. Now, if you just ask, well, doesn't joy come from hope? and doesn't love spill over from joy, then it's no surprise when you read in Galatians 5.22 that love and joy are the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit gives hope by assuring us of God's love in the future. Out of hope comes joy, and that spills over 
in love. So there are two ways that you can describe your key to unlock the treasures of the Christian life. One is to say, the key is to abound in hope, be filled with joy, spill over in love to others to the glory of God. But the other way to describe the key is simply to say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you recognize that fullness with joy, hope, and love, and fullness with the Holy Spirit are one fullness, something very practical emerges in order to answer the question that we're posing at Bethlehem these days. How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? How can we enjoy the outpouring of the Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament and begun at Pentecost? The answer comes like this. Since hope is born through meditating upon the incomparable hope-giving promises of God, we ought to meditate upon the Word. Let me read you a text that ties the Word into the Spirit. Romans 15:4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction in order that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So hope is born out of meditation upon God's life-giving promises. But that's no contradiction to the verse that comes eight verses later, where it says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound in hope. Hope comes from the Spirit. Hope comes from the Word because the Word and the Spirit always function in harmony together to produce in our lives the hope that we so need. Now, I had originally intended this to be a a short introduction to a long exposition of Isaiah 44, 1-5, but I got carried away And so it'll have to be a a long introduction to a short exposition of Isaiah 44, 1 to 5. So if you've closed your Bible, maybe you want to open it now to Isaiah 44. And I hope that you see, by the time I'm done with a few minutes of exposition of this passage, that everything I've tried to lay out from verses around the New Testament in the past 15 minutes or so really is here in Isaiah in a seed form. Isaiah 44, 1-5 is a promise. And the reason I chose it is because what I want to happen in unfolding it for you is for it to produce hope and hope to produce in you joy this morning and joy to overflow in love this afternoon and Monday morning. I want to ask two questions of this text. One, to whom is the promise given or made? Who are the beneficiaries of it? And two, what is the promise? So let's take those in order. First, who are the beneficiaries of this promise? The answer, I think, is that it is not all Israelites. Not all Israel per se will benefit from this promise. Nor will only Israel benefit from this promise. Now let me try to show you where I get 
both of those ideas from the text. In the verse immediately preceding chapter 44, verse 28 of chapter 43, God shows what he does with unrepentant Israel. He says, I delivered Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. That means that when Israel refuses to serve God, God opposes Israel and punishes Israel. Which implies that when he starts this promise in verses 1 to 5, he is addressing an Israel that he assumes is obedient. And you can see the words implying that in verse 1 and verse 2, he calls them Israel my servant. Verse 1, hear now Jacob my servant. Verse 2, fear not, O Jacob, my servant. But not only that, you see that word Jeshurun in verse 2? That's not a common word to describe Israel. It occurs about four or five times in the Old Testament. It comes from the Hebrew word Yashar, which means to be upright, and therefore this is a, a coined name that God uses for his beloved people Israel when they are upright. Jeshurun, my people, my upright ones. Which implies that this promise is not guaranteed to Israel in their unrepentance. It is for Israel in their belief and in their obedience. But I said the promise goes beyond Israel. Verse 5 is where I get that idea. I think verse 5 is talking about Gentiles who align themselves with the God of Israel. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and surname himself by the name of Israel. In other words, the promise that is being made here is going to spill over the banks of Israel and reach out to the nations when any of those nations say, I belong to the God of Israel. I love the God of Israel. I write his name on my hand. He's my God. I am his servant. When any time a Gentile does that, that Gentile becomes a beneficiary of the promises, which means, as we learned from Galatians, that if you belong to Jesus the son of the father, who is the God of Jacob, then you belong to the seed of Abraham and are heirs according to the promise. Therefore, what we read here in this ancient text from the 8th century B.C. is for Bethlehem Christians in 1984. That's to whom the promise is made. It's made to you. That means that the next question becomes very relevant. What's the promise? What can I anticipate that the Lord wants to do for me from this word. Verse 3 is where we'll begin with that answer, right in the middle. I will pour out my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. God promised in the 8th century B.C. that there would come a day when he would pour out himself or his spirit upon his obedient people, Jeshurun, my servant, my upright ones. Now, what does that mean? What's in this word, pour out? Doesn't pouring imply copiousness? 
When, when we say it's pouring outside, which it isn't right now, snow doesn't pour. But if it were pouring outside, we say it's pouring outside, and we'd mean something different than it's drizzling, or it's dripping, or it's misting. What we would mean is, if you go outside, you're going to get drenched. You're going to get soaked. Therefore, I take it that this text means that there's coming a day when God isn't just going to touch His people. He's going to soak His people. He's going to drench His people with His Spirit so that His Spirit surrounds them, fills them, overflows from them, permeates every part of their mind and their heart and their action and their feeling and their thinking they will be shot through by the Holy Spirit because He has poured His Spirit upon them. And I would argue that ever since the day of Pentecost, when this text, along with Joel 2 and Ezekiel 39, received their inaugural fulfillment, ever since that day, it is the duty and the delight of every Christian to seek to be saturated or drenched or soaked or filled by the Holy Spirit. When we read Isaiah 44 from so many centuries ago, having known that Pentecost has intervened, we ought not to be content until we can say, I am a God-besotted person. I am saturated with the living God. Now, what will that mean? We're going to talk about that a lot more in our Sunday morning series, and tonight we begin the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 12, and oh, there is so much there. It has got so much in it. But this morning, I just want to restrict ourselves to Isaiah and ask Isaiah, what, what Isaiah has the Lord communicated to you that it means that we are to be drenched with the Holy Spirit? And there are two or three things here. First, verse 2. When you are drenched by the Holy Spirit, your fears will be taken away. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Why? Well, the Spirit of God is God. When you are covered with God, saturated with God, surrounded with God, God in front and behind and above and on either side and below, you're safe. Who can harm you if God is for you and all around you and drenching you? And therefore, fear is taken away. When we are drenched by the Holy Spirit, we have the assurance that Mondays are made in heaven. Not just Fridays and Saturdays. Mondays are made by a loving God in heaven. And you might be facing some really fearful things tomorrow, this afternoon, this week. And I want to admonish you just to open your heart to the Holy Spirit. Meditate on His Word. And you know what will happen? He'll take your fears away. Whether it's relations at home that are getting tense, or whether it's health deteriorating, or whether it's a boss who might be planning your dismissal, or whether it is a threatening confrontation that you're going to have to have with somebody, this week, whatever it is that's making you anxious about your tomorrow, open your heart to the Spirit. Meditate on the Spirit's Word in Scripture 
and you will find a moving and a filling, pushing out those fears. Verse 3 at the beginning describes the effect of the outpouring another way. I will pour water on the thirsty land, it says in the King James. That word land is not in the Hebrew, and I wish it weren't there in the RSV and the NIV and the NASB. If you've got the good old King James, you've got the best this morning, because it says, I will pour water on him that is thirsty. The thirsty one is going to be satisfied. Not just the land. Yes, there are implications for the land. Here's what I see there. There are two ways for your future to look bleak. One is if you see the prospect of misery on the way. And the other is if you see the prospect that happiness is not on the way. And isn't our heart taken up most of the time with fearing the one and desiring the other. That is, desiring happiness and fearing misery. And isn't it beautiful in this text that the first thing he says is, fears can be taken away. Fear not, my servant Jacob. And then he says, thirsting, longing, desiring can be satisfied when the Spirit is poured out. I think right here is what I was getting at in the introduction to the exposition, namely that fear gives, if you take it away, it gives hope for the future. And then if you satisfy longings, you get filled up with joy. And so that uh, leaves us with the question about whether or not there might be in this text anything about the third thing I mentioned, namely the spillover of love. And it's not really here. I don't think explicitly. I think it's implied in the connection between verses 4 and 5. But if we were to ask Isaiah, Isaiah, I learned from the New Testament that uh, hope and joy spill over in love to others. Do you know anything about that? He'd say, chapter 58, verse 11. So turn over there with me. Chapter 58, verse 11, takes us through what we've seen so far in Isaiah 44, but it takes us one crucial step farther. The Lord will guide you continually, verse 11 says, and satisfy your desire with good things, make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden. Now that's what we saw in chapter 44. But notice that next phrase. Like a spring of water whose waters fail not. That's what we want most of all. You will never be satisfied being a sponge. You will not be a whole person in God's image as He created you to be until you become a spring from which the needy people around you can drink. Drink. 